0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's public event How to Live Better and Age Well. My name's Tamrin Lashley, and I'm the Director of Research at Queen Square Brain Bank for Neurological Disorders at University College London. And as someone who works, involves the research into neurodegenerative diseases, I'm both fascinated and delighted to welcome neuroscientist Daniel Levitin to the RSA to talk about his latest book, The Changing Mind, A Neuroscientist's Guide to Ageing Well. In his book, Daniel explores the science of ageing, highlighting many cognitive benefits of the advancing years whilst challenging many of the common assumptions about ageing, including memory loss. So, Daniel Levitin is an award-winning scientist, musician, and author. is also the James McGill Professor of Psychology and Behavioural Neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal, where he runs his laboratory in music, perception, and expertise. He's also written three consecutive books, best-selling books, This is Your Brain on Music, The World in Six Songs, and The Organized Mind. So please join me in welcoming our guest speaker today, Daniel Levitin.
1: Well, thank you. As a a fellow of the RSA, it's really a pleasure to be back here amongst friends and the opportunity to meet new people. And um, I'm very excited about the time that we're living in. because of what science has to say about it. Um, There are a number of myths about aging, but I can tell you that now is the very best time in history to be getting old. (laughs) We're living longer and healthier than ever before. Uh, We're living more productively into our later years. There are a number of reasons for this, but a lot of it is thanks to the ingenious people in medical research who have figured out Uh, how to keep us alive, not just longer, but better and healthier. Uh, Almost every disease that killed people 100 years ago has been eradicated. Think about that. Now we have new diseases, of course, that uh, can kill us because we're living long enough to get them, like cancer and Alzheimer's. But the good news is that there's enormous progress being made in both fronts. On the cancer front, just to touch on it, My colleague, Jim Allison, who uh, has been working in immunotherapy and something you may have heard of called checkpoint inhibitors, he can cure 95% of all of a certain kind of cancer with a pill. And there are virtually no side effects that we know of. Now, that happens to be a rare form of cancer, a type of melanoma. But, I mean, the promise is that these will be available for most cancers, we think in the next 10 to 15 years. So if you're gonna get cancer, try and wait (laughs) 10 or 15 years, what it'll be very easy to deal with. And on the Alzheimer's front, uh, we have a number of people working um, all around the world like Professor Lashley and uh, Stan Prusner and others who are really getting to the biology and genetics of the disease And it would not surprise me if in the next 10 years, we're able to deal with that entirely differently and much more efficiently than we do now. But even setting aside those two things, there's a lot to be hopeful for. Uh, I'd like to begin by exploding a couple of myths about aging. There's a kind of societal narrative that we share about what it means to get older. And it's just not consistent with science. Uh, The the science has changed a lot. The reason I wrote the book is that in the last 10 or 15 years, in neuroscience in particular, we've learned a whole lot about the aging brain. And most of that hasn't trickled down to the average reader. Uh, I read 4,000 peer-reviewed papers in order to write this book. Uh, 4,000 papers so that you wouldn't have to read them all. But if you want to, they're all listed in the back of the book in very small type. Uh, And there's a large print version of the book for those of you who can't rake out the small type. (laughs) Uh, Not anybody in this room I can see. Um, One of the myths is that uh, memory failure is inevitable. Now, it's true there are some older adults who experience memory difficulties. In fact, that is one of the, the, the behavioral markers of Alzheimer's. It's what causes people to go to the doctor. Uh, but Alzheimer's is rarer than you think, and memory impairment is not a given. If you look at older adults in the aggregate, uh, many, many older adults uh, will have very little or no memory impairment all through their 80s and 90s. Um, It's hard to believe, isn't it? Uh, A lot of misdiagnosed cases of Alzheimer's based on a patient, an individual presenting with a memory impairment, aren't actually because the person has a memory impairment, it's because they're sleep deprived. One of the things we've learned as neuroscientists in the last 10 years is the importance of sleep, even among older adults. Another myth, older adults don't need as much sleep. Not at all true. They only get about five and a half or six hours for a whole bunch of other reasons, but they still need eight or nine hours like the rest of us And an hour and a half to two hours of lost sleep in a night on several consecutive nights presents as memory impairment, profound memory impairment. You can have difficulty encoding memories for two weeks after just one bad night of sleep after age 70. So tackling uh, sleep deprivation is an important thing to do. as I say, a lot of cases of Alzheimer's are misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's initially. It's just sleep deprivation. A lot of times Alzheimer's is misdiagnosed based on memory impairment, and it's just side effects of drugs. Many older adults are taking several drugs, some as many as 10 or 12. The, all the possible ways that those 10 drugs could interact with each other make what computer scientists would call a combinatorial explosion, It's impossible to study every possible pairwise interaction. It's, it's, It's impractical. So we don't really know what the effects of all these drugs are. Together, it's called polypharmacy. The idea that you're taking a whole lot of drugs, we don't know what they're doing. And for the lucky few who have doctors who will take the time to look through the list of drugs they're taking, many cases of memory impairment go away when a dose is adjusted or a drug is taken off the list that the patient no longer needs. But you know the doctors just keep adding new drugs to the list. No one of them wants to take a drug off the list because they're afraid that it might get them in trouble if you have a turn for the worse. It's, a, it's a, a, a not the best system. Polypharmacy, sleep deprivation. Now, um, it is true that our brains slow down as we age. In fact, in every decade after age 40, we slow down. Neural transmission speed slows down. That's because of a number of factors, but one of them is demyelination. Your brain is basically a bunch of electrical circuits. They're sending electrical pulses around and the the wires that the brain uses, the neurons, are insulated, just like the wires in your house. And if if the insulation in your house becomes frayed or worn, you know that can lead to sparks and fires. And in the brain, if the insulation becomes worn, the first thing we notice is a slowing down of transmission speeds. That insulation is called myelin. It's a fatty substance, it's white, which is why we refer to white matter of the brain as opposed to gray matter, which are the cell bodies. The white matter is the transmission tracts. Demyelination is a natural consequence of aging. Your body can't keep up with the normal remyelination processes well enough. Um, In some cases, It's simple vitamin B12 deficiency. If you're over 60 and you can get your doctor to do it, you might want to have your B12 levels checked and B12 supplements along with eating good proteins, uh, the so-called fatty fish like salmon that are high in omega-3s, together the B12 and the omega-3s produce uh, new myelin sheaths and then you have less of a decline in reaction time and processing speed. I hope you see that the the nature of my my book is to combine the science with the practical. I can say get your B twelve checked, but if you don't know why you're getting it checked, uh, you know it, it's it's harder to motivate yourself to do it or to do something about it. I, I I've spent my whole life as an educator, and I believe that education is important. That people need to understand why they're doing the things they do, and and. Uh, So they can make informed choices about whether they wanna do one thing or another. Um, The other uh, thing about memory failure that's interesting, um, due to this this loss of reaction time, or or, uh, actually loss of of speed of processing, which leads to increased time reacting to things, um, there's an increase in the amount of time it takes you to access words and thoughts as you get older. It's not a memory impairment, strictly speaking. Uh, I trained as a memory theorist and a, a, a memory neuroscientist and that's really where the bulk of my work sits in memory. And um, when you look carefully at what's happening in these retrieval problems, older adults trying to find a word or a name, usually they get it eventually, right? So it's not a memory impairment, technically speaking. we now have some neuroimaging studies, brain scans, that show that what's happening is an area of the brain called the phonological word center, which is just a jargony fancy name for the part of the brain that retrieves the collection of consonants and vowels that make the word. That's what's impaired. There's kind of a bottleneck as you get older. You have so much more in your memory that memories crowd out the, the, the channel by which you're trying to grab them. Um, and this part of your brain, you, you, the part of your brain that knows the meaning of the word is fine. It's the actual way to pronounce it or write it, the, the phonology of it, the consonants and vowels. Um, and so that's the impairment. It's not technically a memory impairment. And um, that improves with practice, uh, with with using words, with talking, with writing and reading. Uh, and it improves with increased myelination. Uh, it also improves, we're increasingly seeing people over the age of 75 or 80 who are slowing down due to normal age-related chemical changes in the brain. And those cause a, a kind of overall lack of concentration and focus and energy. And what we find is that age at over age 70, 75, 80, taking a small amount of an antidepressant actually reactivates the, uh, brings the neurochemical balance to a homeostasis and reactivates the brain in positive ways. Uh, Again, it's not that uh, older adults in this case are what you would call clinically depressed, like a 40-year-old. It's not that they're sleeping too much and that they uh, don't take pleasure, and uh, my life is ruined, and everything's terrible, and nobody likes me. It's not that stuff. It's just sort of a lowering of, of enthusiasm, and pleasure, and energy levels. And for reasons we don't fully understand, antidepressants can combat that. I had a favorite professor of mine, any of you who have read my any of my previous books know that I talk about him all the time. His name was John Pierce, John Robinson Pierce. Uh, In his spare time, he was a science fiction writer, but his main job for many years was he was the executive vice president of research at the Bell Laboratories. And in that capacity, he oversaw the team of scientists that invented the transistor, and he uh, patented it and he named it. Uh, He also launched the very first telecommunication satellite, Telstar. Uh, So your cell phone service is owing in part to that. Um, He... uh, He was pushed out of that job at a rather young age because of ageism, and so he took up a second career where he was the director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratories in Pasadena, who were happy to have him, where he oversaw a number of rocket launches and design uh, things. Um, And then they pushed him out of that, and he came to Stanford at age 77 to be a professor, and that's when I encountered him. He was my... uh, my physics of of sound teacher, and we became friends, and we started going out to dinner uh, every Wednesday night and had had a great relationship. But he got Parkinson's disease, and at age 80, he started to slow down quite a bit. And I suggested that he ask his doctor for an antidepressant. He started taking Prozac, and it turned everything around. He spent the last, it didn't fix the Parkinson's, but you know, in the, in the months leading up to my making the suggestion, you know, John wasn't so excited about going out to dinner like he used to be. And I'd try everything. You wanna to go to a different restaurant? No, you, you, you know, can I, can I pick you up instead of us meeting there? No, can I come over and read to you? No, not, you know, he was just not interested or engaged with the things that traditionally brought him pleasure. But that changed everything. Uh, Now, I don't mean to be heavy-handed on drug therapies because there are many ways for people to get to this state of improved engagement. Um, And a number of things actually change the brain. Uh, Therapy, meditation, uh, having a a social support system of people who are cheering you on and who are nurturing, uh, role models, yoga, All of these things change the structure in the brain, so far as we know, in the same way that antidepressants do, but there's no one path for everybody. Some things work well for some people and some don't. Um, So I was talking about the myth of memory. Uh, I talked about the myth of uh, people not needing more sleep as they get older. Another myth is that old people are depressed. uh, And in fact, they're not. I mean, notwithstanding the case of, of Professor Pierce, who I wouldn't say was depressed, but uh, had a neurochemical imbalance that needed to be fixed. Um, certainly not depressed in by a conventional definition. Um, old people are not depressed. Uh, they tend to be happier than younger people. In fact, the World Health Organization uh, did a study of, of uh, people across 72 countries asked to rate the peak age of happiness in their lives. What do you suppose they said? 82. <laughs> 82 was the peak age of happiness. Now, we understand that there's a neurochemical basis for this uh, to some degree. There are also neurostructural changes that contribute to this a shrinking of the amygdala, that is, the fear center of the brain. There's um, a tendency for older adults to become more grateful to experience more gratitude. And my colleagues in positive psychology and happiness research, uh, it's actually a thing, uh, have uh, shown that um, the quickest way to feel happy is to to feel grateful for what you have. Rather than focusing on all the things you don't have, if you focus on what you do have, that's a terrific way to be happy. Older adults come to this quite naturally through the aging process. Um, More grateful. It may be the one thing that the Dalai Lama and Warren Buffett both agree on. Maybe the only thing. You couldn't imagine two more different people. But both of them practice gratitude. Uh, Buffett, as you may know, one of the richest people in the world. Uh, He lives in the same old, relatively modest house he's lived in for 45 years. He drives a 15-year-old beat up uh, car Chrysler with a rusty bumper. He doesn't have a chauffeur. Uh, When he goes to uh, travel, typically he'll go to a a convenience store and buy a bag of Oreos and a quart of milk and that'll be his breakfast the next day. I mean, he's not not somebody who's constantly thinking, I I wish I had that and that and that and that. Uh, Nor is the Dalai Lama. Uh, The Dalai Lama practices gratitude meditation at least an hour or two every day. The other thing that the Dalai Lama practices, uh, I had the opportunity to interview him for the book, which was really an extraordinary experience. He'd read The Organized Mind. He invited me to come to India and spend some time with him, uh, which I did, and I, I report in the book. And there's actually a YouTube video of the two of us in conversation. Uh, I can tell you, it was, he is such a joyful person. There was a lot of laughter. The, the entire conversation was full of laughter. Uh, and insight. But uh, in addition to meditating on gratitude, he meditates on compassion. Now, he's 84 now, and he's firing on all cylinders. He just published his 125th book. 125th book. He's publishing them faster than I can read them. I'm still back on number 33. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever catch up, so I might have to skip ahead. But um, And 33 was pretty darn good. Uh, the um, The... The idea of compassion, of feeling compassion for others, is another thing that older adults slip into naturally as a process of aging. older adults are more tolerant, more compassionate, uh, more accepting of individual differences. And as a consequence of all these things, they're better at solving a host of problems uh, especially those that involve interpersonal problems, political problems, social problems, because they have the compassion and the insight born of decades of experience and in interacting with others. Um, so, again, a myth is that older adults are less happy, not true. Older adults are um, not good at solving problems, not true. Another domain in which older adults are great at problem solving is anything involving what a cognitive scientist would call pattern matching. This is the ability to extract from disparate experiences, commonalities, common threads, to be able to see analogies to this problem from problems that have come by before. Um, My own grandfather was a radiologist. Uh, He was pushed out of the very department that he founded He got his degree in 1921. He was one of the first radiology degrees awarded in the United States. Uh, The hospital that he worked at asked him to start a radiology department. He did. He built it up. It had a staff of a dozen radiologists and technicians. And when he was 62, they pushed him out because they said he was old and irrelevant. Now, the irony here is that radiology is pattern matching. It's looking at little blobs of gray and black and white on slides uh, and trying to figure out whether it's cancer or not uh, or you know some sort of growth. And the more you've done it, the better you are at it. So that by the time he was 62, he was, he was better than anybody, half his age. Radiology's like that, surgeries like that, a number of things are. You get better through experience, and experience takes time. Uh, so if you have to get an x-ray read, you want the 62-year-old or the 70-year-old radiologist, not the 30-year-old. If you need a surgery, ask your surgeon, how many times have you done this operation? If the surgeon says, I've done it 5,000 times, and there are plenty of surgeons who have done surgeries 5,000 times, that's the person you want. If, um, if your surgeon says, oh, I've done it, I saw it in school. I, I, I saw them do it in school. I was standing right there. Yeah, but how many times have you done it? Well, five or six, but I'm learning. They have to learn on someone, but they don't have to learn on you. <laughs> um, and even now with robotic surgery, somebody with shaky hands, which can happen at any age, can still do the surgeries. I would rather have a 72-year-old with shaky hands guiding the robot than the 25-year-old who hasn't done it before. Uh, We get better with experience. Part of this societal narrative that I'm weaving here uh, that's faulty is that we look over the course of a lifespan and we see the different developmental stages. And we tend to see them as times of growth along with challenges. Um, Infants are learning to uh, take in the world, and they're just beginning to learn language. Toddlers are learning to walk. Uh, You've got childhood and pre-adolescence and adolescence, and each of these is marked by certain cognitive abilities, certain abilities in thinking that expand. Uh, You've got young adulthood, middle age. We see all of them as phases in which something about us gets better. we tend to see old age differently, which again is not consistent with neuroscience. But the societal narrative is at some age, at some point, we just start losing everything. It's, it's all decline. You can argue about what that point is. 70, 80. I'm a child of the 60s, and you know we used to sing, uh, "I hope I die before I get old," and don't trust anybody over 30." So you know maybe 30 was the point where everything went down, but it doesn't matter. The fact is it doesn't go down, even at 90, not necessarily. Um, old age is accompanied by a number of compensatory mechanisms that kick in, a number of strengths and new abilities. And yes, it's full of challenges, aches and pains. The body starts to go, a uh, uh, generalized slowing down. But every life phase is accompanied by challenges. I, s- I have not yet met somebody who wants to go back to seventh grade. Not a one. It was a terrible time for most people. So that was its challenge. Uh, and I know a lot of people who don't want to be starting their first job again. You know, At any age, you can point to something that was unpleasant about it. Um, that's sort of the gist of what I've uncovered for the last four or five years. And um, I'd like to uh, turn things over to Professor Lashley and um, continue the conversation with her. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Daniel. I've certainly found reading the book very interesting. It certainly opens my uh, mind up to looking at things in a different way from I'm surprised to hear you research. say
1: that because I kind of thought of the book as a really good and effective cure for insomnia. <laughs> I figured two pages and...
0: Well, I have been fitting this, reading this book in for the last two weeks with grant proposals, paper submissions, so I must say I haven't slept (laughs) much in the last two weeks. You run
1: a major laboratory. Yeah,
0: so if I could start with some questions before we open it up to the floor. We've long been encouraged to equate um, old age with the deterioration, um, mental deterioration, but what really happens in our brains as we get older?
1: Well, there's shrinking of the brain, but of course, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, If if size mattered with brains, then there'd be no smart children. Uh, There's um, a tendency for us to lose some of the cellular housekeeping functions throughout the body and including in the brain as we get older. These processes become less efficient um, you end up with what are called senescent cells, uh, cells that are no longer able to divide, and uh, they kind of clog up the works. Um, antioxidants can help clear them out, uh, but there's no evidence that eating uh, antioxidants in a pill will actually do it. Um, the, the, the surprising, one of the many surprising findings is that there's almost no supplement uh, that's being sold today that has any scientific basis to it. Uh, and that includes the antioxidants. I I interviewed five leading antioxidant researchers. After I I wrote the book, I sent them what I had written, and I asked them for comments, and then we had an intensive back and forth. The five of them could not even agree on what an antioxidant is. That is the state (laughs) of the field. And then there are these neurochemical changes. Uh, You produce a little less dopamine, uh, or if you're producing the same amount, you take up less of it, uh, the receptors become uh, less efficient. Now, two things to say about dopamine. Dopamine, among other things, is the neurochemical that makes you want to explore the environment. And so if you notice that older adults are a bit less exploratory than, say, teenagers, uh, it's partly that there are different amounts of dopamine floating around. Teenagers probably have too much of it, uh, there 's an optimal amount um, but you know, these dopamine can be fixed through all of the different dopamine levels can be fixed through all the different things I mentioned meditation, uh, therapy, uh, you know psychotherapy, medication, meditation, and medication, uh, as well as um, you know a support group that encourages you to do new things. Um, the second thing I want to say about. Uh, dopamine, uh, as you well know, is um, there are about 100 neurochemicals in the brain, and we only have effective tools for measuring about four of them. (laughs) So we talk a lot about dopamine and serotonin and adrenaline and oxytocin, but the reality is they're not doing all the work, and, and what work they're doing is a delicate choreography with the other 96 neurochemicals. It's just that those are the ones we have the tools for looking at. It's sort of like the drunk looking for his keys under the lamppost, even though that's not where he lost them, but the light is better there. So, uh, you know.
0: So so what do you think our main challenges are as we we age, um, you spoke about the the different decades bring on different challenges, but as as we do get older and mature, do you think there's any um, influence on society? How can we help people age better from a society point of view?
1: Well, I think the first main challenge is that uh, for for reasons that I've already covered, brain changes, basically, we tend to uh, be less exploratory and and don't want to try new things. And that's bad for older adults and it's bad for society, and particularly as it comes to associating with other people. A lot of the myths about older age are dispelled as soon as younger people start spending time with older people. And we've seen this over and over again with the various isms. Uh, People are afraid, uh, you know, through sexism or racism of people who are not like them, but then they spend time with them and that melts away. We saw it most recently with the Syrian refugees. Many people uh, didn't know any Syrians and they were afraid of Syrians because they didn't know them. But once they got to know them, they weren't afraid of them anymore. The same thing is true of older adults. I think that uh, what we can do as older adults and what we can do as a society is encourage more cross-generational interactions. Older adults do not have all the answers, uh, even though sometimes, People of my boomer generation think we do. We're wrong. We don't have them. Uh, But younger adults don't have all the answers either. We know from now decades of research in um, productivity and creativity that the best combination is to have a diverse group of people, not not just age or race, but every every possible background
0: as part of a team leads to better
1: decision-making.
0: We've seen in, in the UK, there's a move to take younger uh, nursery age children into uh, old people's homes or, um, and, and what they've tended to see is but both generations tend to benefit from that interaction. Do you see that in in Canada at all?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's two programs in Canada that have been interesting. One is that in Toronto where there's a housing crisis, uh, these new combination dormitories slash senior living facilities have cropped up where adults say over 70 are living in these buildings with college students. And the college students might help the older adult change their light bulbs or chop their vegetables if they aren't comfortable handling a sharp object. And the uh, the, old, the older adults help them with their homework or help them with a social problem, boyfriend-girlfriend problem kind of a thing. Um, both of them enjoy the conversation. you know. Um, in the United States, there's this uh, uh, fear about, you know, whether well, there was this fear over several months about the impeachment of the president, and a lot of people in their 20s were freaking out. What does this mean? What's going to happen? And older adults who lived through uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton and the almost impeachment of Richard Nixon were there to say, "Well, look, this this has happened before. I witnessed it." You never know how things are going to turn out, but, you know, in these cases, the checks and
0: balances worked. So you mentioned in your book that the biological age of humans is 115. Is there any way from social interactions or diet, more sleep, that we can extend that? Or do you think that's our genetic biological age? We can't really go beyond that at the moment.
1: Well, to be fair, um, there are, I do mention 115 as a limit that some people believe is there, but there are other people who believe that the, that's not a limit. Uh, and the field of uh, gerontological biologists and molecular biologists and geneticists, all the people who study these things, there's not agreement about whether there's a hard limit. Um, we we tend, to des- tend to die of diseases. Um, We don't get picked off by predators like most other organisms on the planet. We die of some disease. Um, And the sort of rhetorical question is if we could eliminate all diseases, how long would we live and what would we then die from? Uh, There's people on the one hand who say, well, it doesn't matter because uh, cellular division um, stops, telomeres get shorter, which stops cell division. any, you all know what telomeres are?
0: No. no, no. So it's like, <laughs> um,
1: your DNA replicates throughout your entire life. Uh, that's what keeps you going. Uh, it contains instructions uh, to tell the body what proteins to make and how to make them and a number of other things. Um, the way that the DNA gets copied is that every time it gets copied, it loses a little bit of genetic material. And so evolution came up with this brilliant strategy of putting basically some junk at the end of the sequence that are called telomeres that don't really count. They've been likened to the plastic tips at the end of your shoelaces that keep the the genes from fraying. And it turns out there's something called the Hayfleck limit. Leonard Hayfleck discovered that after about 50 or so divisions, um, the telomeres have gotten short to the point that they're not there anymore, and now all you've got is DNA, and somehow the DNA knows not to replicate when the telomeres are gone. So there's an active area of research trying to figure out how to keep telomeres longer. That may push us out to 200, uh, but we just don't know enough about the ways that we die because we don't have enough data. You know, there are very few people that live to 115, and, and we can't extrapolate any generalization about how they died. Many of them die in, you know, like the Ural Mountains or the Himalayas and we we don't have access to their brains to study them and, uh, but uh, I think for me, the important question is not how long are you gonna live, but how well are you gonna live? And my colleague, um, Elizabeth uh, Blackburn, has said that, uh, who's done a lot of work on uh, telomeres, uh, has said that um, if you think of the amount of time you're on the planet as the lifespan, it's helpful to divide it up into the health span and the disease span. So the idea there is that for most of us, we're gonna gonna be born, we're gonna live relatively healthy with a few little ups and downs. uh, And then at some point in our life, we get sick and we die from whatever we got sick from. health span, disease span. There's a lot of conversation about pushing out the lifespan, not a lot of conversation or funding for increasing the health span. Within whatever amount of time you have, what can we do to keep you healthier? And that's really the thrust of the whole second part of my book, is lifestyle changes that we can all make at any age that will tilt the balance in favor of us living healthier. Um, My... My own family has been a kind of um, inspiring and and, and tragic illustration of this. My mother is 85, my father's 87. Um, My mother is uh, continuing to do new things. She took up painting a few years ago. She's now showing her paintings in galleries all over Los Angeles. My father at 87 just signed a four-year extension on his teaching contract at USC or he's a professor, the students love him because he's got all this real world experience. Um, But my aunt, my mother's sister, had a a mental breakdown at age 60 and then spent the next 30 years basically unaware of her surroundings, unable to feed herself and nobody could figure out how to treat her. Um, It's a very individual decision about how long you want to live and what you want that life to look like. It's it's not for someone like me to say, Um, if given the choice, maybe my aunt would have asked to have, you know, the last 30 years alive as opposed to dead, no matter what condition she was in. But she might have chosen not to. This, you know, these are conversations we should all start having with our loved ones now before we need to have them so that we're accustomed to thinking about it. And this is why people recommend advanced health directives and things like that.
0: I think you've answered my next question. I was going to ask you, would you like to live to 200 years old? But I guess if you're living in the healthy lifespan, rather than...
1: I would like to live to 200 because I, I think that the next uh, 138 years for me uh, <laughs> would be full of a lot of surprises. Uh, Certainly more books, more more music, uh, more time with my wife, Um, but, uh, and and a succession of of canine companions, (laughs) uh, accompanied by the tragic loss every 15 years, uh, which is horrible, but uh, worth it. Um, But if if I'm gonna spend the last 90 years sitting in a chair like my aunt, I don't want it. Mm
0: -hmm. So in the book, The Changing Mind, you offer some actionable tips throughout the the decades. Um, So what would your advice be from 40 onwards?
1: (laughs) You mean 10 years from now when you're 40?
0: No, (laughs) you're very kind.
1: (laughs) Well, um, I think the thing is to uh, begin thinking about aging as a process that starts the day you're born, not just something that's gonna happen to you later. Mm and get in the habit of thinking about what you can do to tilt the balance. Of course, genetics have a bit to say about it, but they're not uh, uh, a death sentence. Genetics are not the whole story. Depending on what we're talking about, they account for maybe 50% of your outcomes or as little as 7%. There's a whole lot that's still under your control. And I would say the chief thing that's under your control is your mindset. Mm Um, things like resilience, your ability to recover from negative news or negative experience. Things like your ability to manage stress. Stress is very individualistic. What one person finds stressful and another person finds invigorating. There's no list of things you check off and say, uh, all these things happen to me, I must be stressed. It's how you react. Uh, so resilience, stress management, Um, Curiosity, curiosity is very important. If you're curious about the world, you're more likely to try new things. You're more likely to want to meet new people. Um, And those are neurally protective uh, at any age. Um, I'm sad to report that these qualities are not Uh, evenly distributed across the population. We don't all have equal amounts of them. But the good news is you can change them at any age. And again, that same list of things I mentioned earlier, if you want to change one of those, there are a lot of ways to do it. Uh, Engaging with inspirational art, meditating, psychotherapy. Psychotherapy works. Not every therapist is good. Not every therapist is good for you. But psychotherapy really has a good history of working, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very practically based on giving you the tools you need to make the changes in your life that you identify. Uh, It's not about, you know, tell me about your childhood and your mother and all of that stuff. It's it's about looking forward. Um, So I think that mindset and these personality variables are really the important part. I, I touched on cognitive reserve, and I should unpack what that means. Um, if you are a weightlifter and you can bench press 400 pounds, I can't, by the way. Uh, if, you're, if you're having a bad day, maybe you're, you're coming down with the flu or you, you've got a bad night's sleep, you're hungover, whatever, you may not be able to do your 400 pounds, but 100 pounds will be no problem for you. I can't do 100 pounds but that's that's the reserve that a weightlifter has. Um, If you run 25 miles uh, and you're having a bad day, you can still run a mile. Um, The brain sort of works like that. If you build up cognitive reserve through curiosity, through learning new things, through associating with new people, you're building up um, what we call neuroplasticity, just a fancy word for the brain making new connections. You can do that at any age, that never stops. Um, And I actually had an experience with this myself, uh, in that I effectively had what felt like Alzheimer's for a year. In 2017, I was in my car, stopped in traffic, and a car smashed in behind me at high speed. And I got a concussion in my prefrontal cortex and my cerebellum. And I had word retrieval difficulties, I got super emotional, I was crying all the time. Uh, i My sleep patterns were completely disrupted. I was irritable. Many of the things that we say are alzheimer 's related For those of you who are interested, I wrote about it in an article for The New York Times after it was over. I think I got better i don 't know you 'll have to be the judge but <laughs> <laughs> I think i 'm making sense, but <laughs> i don 't know <laughs> but um the The interesting thing is I knew i wasn 't making sense then um, but My ability to come back, I think, um, benefited from something that was completely out of my control, which is that my parents, thankfully, um, uh, built into me a desire to stay curious about the world and to learn new things. And so my brain was able to spring back Mm -hmm. because it was used
0: to that. Great. Thank you, Daniel. I think we'll open it up to questions from the audience now. We've got a couple of microphones, um, so if you could pop your hand up. If I can just ask you to keep your questions short and concise so we can ask as many questions from the audience as possible. Um, we've got one in the middle here. Can you just wait? Sorry, can you just wait for the microphone? Oh, thank you. I'm interested in the role of calorie restriction. I'll tell you why. I had lunch yesterday with a gentleman who is 107 and three quarters and just writing his latest scientific paper. He was an identical twin. His twin brother died in his late 80s, but Bill, who is still alive, spent three years as a prisoner of war in Singapore where he was virtually starved. And I wonder whether this has something to do with his longevity.
1: Well, uh, please chime in with these answers because you're you're an eminent neuroscientist as well, so I don't want to hog the. <laughs>
0: That's a okay, cake of one.
1: Uh, the um, first thing is that uh, another myth: identical twins do not have identical DNA; they have different DNA. Uh, I mean, little bits and pieces are different, and it, you know, every pair of identical twins is different. But it could be simply that they had different DNA. Uh, that's the way DNA transcription works. There are mutations and errors and not identical. But on the topic of caloric restriction, uh, there's quite a lot of evidence from animal models that caloric restriction is healthful uh, because it kickstarts the body's cellular repair mechanisms and immune system. And there's no convincing evidence in human models but the evidence in animal models is sufficient that every scientist I know who's in the field studying uh, caloric restriction has started caloric restriction themselves. And even many who are not directly I'll in the field. I... <laughs> well, because eating is fun. fasting. <laughs> well, you, you are doing intermittent <laughs> yeah. fasting, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I definitely feel healthier for doing it. So, But there's no scientific basis. <laughs> well, <laughs> in animals that? there in is. In animals, yeah. Right.
1: Uh, There there are a whole bunch of things that there's scientific evidence in animals and not in humans, and in general, I would say don't do it uh, because the animal models um, are more than 90% of the time don't translate to humans. But there are a few things where, as far as we know, it won't hurt you, so you might as well try. That's one of them. The interesting thing I discovered in writing the book and talking to people in the field is that there's no one method of intermittent fasting or caloric restriction that is better than any other as far as we know. So you could just miss a couple of meals a week. You could decide to do 12-hour fasts every day. No food from, say, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., which a lot of people do anyway. Uh, 14-hour fast if you want. Maybe skip food one day a week. Maybe have a four-day juice cleanse once a year. None of it seems to matter, really. Uh, Just the idea that you are uh, restricting seems to be the key. Don't do it if you have diabetes, (laughs) because uh, it'll wreak havoc with your blood sugar levels and your insulin signaling. And before you do anything like that, check with your physician to make sure that it's a good (laughs) idea. I don't want to send you all off to uh, something that might be harmful.
0: Question at the back there. There's been a lot written in recent times about the impact of music, and particularly singing choirs, on the aging process, and also learning a new language. What are your views on that?
1: Um, Great question. Um, Singing is an activity that uh, is is helpful in that it, um, it requires you to, to breathe and, and breathe in a way you wouldn't normally breathe. That's good. It oxygenates the blood. Uh, it, if you're singing with others, it's a social experience. There's weak evidence, uh, but evidence that people sing together who sing together release oxytocin, a hormone that helps you to feel bonded uh, to the people that you're with. Singing often elevates mood. Um, in general, Doing something new when you're older is a good thing. If you haven't sung before and you take up singing, that's especially beneficial. If you want to learn a new language, that's great. Um, Or just talking to somebody new. What you and I are doing, what we're doing here, is about the most complex operation for the brain that we know of, Uh, talking to somebody new. So um, all of those things are good. I, there, there's no evidence that doing music has any protective effects that are better than other things, like learning a language, or learning a new game, or traveling, meeting new people.
0: There's a question over there. The yeah, hi. Um, I'm always hearing about the importance of sleep. So what is your advice for people that can't, well, I I can get to sleep, but I can't stay asleep, and I'm sure a lot of other people have problems with sleep.
1: Well, um, there's an excellent book by Matthew Walker called Why We Sleep, uh, and I devote uh, all of one chapter and parts of two others on sleep in this book, uh, and I've kind of condensed Matthew Walker's findings, his book and his research findings, and those of other researchers like Robert Stickgold of Harvard. Uh, The basic story is you need to practice good sleep hygiene, and it's probably a lot of things that you've read about, but I'll I'll run through them really quickly. Um, Go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. That can be impractical, it can be no fun, but you have a biological clock that synchronizes Uh, the um, chemicals that your body releases that help you wake up in the morning, that help you go to sleep at night, that keep you asleep. And if your biological clock gets messed up uh, through not going to sleep and waking up at the same time every day, it can be really hard to get it resynchronized when you're older. And even, you know, in your 30s and 40s. um, The other thing is sleep in a darkened room because light is a cue to wake up. Uh, Alcohol, for many people before bedtime, although it'll knock you out. You have a rebound and you wake up again uh, after having drank, drunk, after having had a drink. Uh, (laughs) And um, the uh, other problem with having any kind of fluids before bed is you have to get up and use the bathroom. So, you know, if, if you're somebody who has that problem, I would say don't drink anything three hours before going to bed. Or if you're drinking fluids... Uh, drink them with uh, salt so that your body will retain them through the night. Or an oral rehydration solution, which includes salts as well as uh, other beneficial chemicals. Um, use a, in in, um, in the winter or in cloudy climates, uh, use a, bl- a blue full-spectrum light in the morning for 15 minutes to signal your body that it's morning time. Um, those are the basics of it. Oh, and don't take sleeping pills. Sleeping pills actually will knock you out like alcohol, but they completely disrupt the normal course of your sleep cycle. And so although you might think that you're asleep, you're not asleep in the technical definition of, of what we think of as restorative brain processes.
0: May I do the front end? Just a clarification, uh, if you reduce carbs for both type 1 and type 2 diabetics, or people with a diabetes, is very helpful, and it, uh, of course followed by a doctor or a GP or whatever, it can actually reverse diabetes if you lose 10% of your weight. And it depends how much time you will have with diabetes. Thank, Thank you. Okay? Thank you.
1: There's one over here. No oh,
0: question over here. Okay. Thank you. You, you.
1: you mentioned earlier looking at uh, young smart brains. So I wondered what learning there was about prodigy brains in absolute, and also any evidence about what happened to them when they age. Um, there, are, there are not many studies of prodigies, um, and we don't know much about their brains. Um, I don't know what to say about it that's grounded in science. I've, I've known some prodigies. Um, often, and, and, and the, I know the most about musical prodigies, because uh, that's an interest of mine. An interesting thing is that often what we consider to be prodigious talent in a young musician um, turns out to be really just a kind of ability to mimic So uh, the young child can play extraordinarily well uh, by copying other performances. Uh, And then, you know, about the age of 20, when they're supposed to establish their own identity as a musician and sound like themselves, they kind of fall off the map. Uh, Not always the case. uh, Kisin, the uh, great Russian pianist, started out very young. Sarah Chang started out young and they're both doing well. But the number of prod- musical prodigies who disappeared is, is, you know, most of them. But yeah, we don't know much about the brains. Could you
0: say something about the connection between physical exercise and the
1: aging process? Thank you for that question. Uh, if you didn't hear it, it was about physical exercise and the aging brain. Exercise is good because uh, it oxygenates the blood. The brain runs on oxygenated glucose. You need the oxygen to transport things in the blood, and uh, so having oxygenated blood is good. Um, But more important than exercise is movement, and a particular kind of movement, moving in natural settings. We don't really know why, but there's a lot of evidence coming out that um, moving in nature is, is more uh, neurally protective than just you know cardio on a, an elliptical. And um, it, the hippocampus, which is the structure in the brain that's the seat of memory, evolved in organisms, in mammals over you know, hundreds of thousands of years, to remember places. Uh, you needed your hippocampus if you were, if you were mobile. Uh, as a a mammal, you needed to remember where the food is, and where a predator might lurk, and where the water source is, where shelter is. And so the hippocampus starts out as a a spatial memory area. We use it for a whole bunch of other things, but it didn't evolve for that. And you probably all know um, here about the famous study of London taxicab drivers whose brains were studied and it was found that, um, you know, this is before the days of GPS, they, they had a much larger hippocampus than any other people. It had grown in response to learning all these spatial and navigational routes. So, um, again, your brain didn't evolve to remember the lyrics to songs or the phone number of your spouse, but um, it did evolve to remember spatial location. And if you get out and explore the environment, that, see, that strengthens the the hippocampus. And what we find also is that a lot of people are sedentary as they get older, and the biggest difference, the biggest statistical difference in how well you'll age isn't whether you add another 20 minutes on the treadmill. It's whether you just get up out of your couch and walk around the block once or twice a day. That's where we see the biggest improvement, from sedentarism to non-sedentarism. It's a
0: question I'd like.
1: Keely has the mic.
0: Hello, it's been a wonderful talk, thank you. Um, My family has a history of dyslexia. And one of the things about dyslexia is that you suffer suffer from short-term memory loss. And I wonder if there's been any linking or whether you've um, done any research to see whether this is affected more with pe as people as dyslexics age or does it just stay the same or any difference at all?
1: I'm sorry to say I don't know the answer to that, but I will look it up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> A question at the back there? Hi, I'm looking for ways to keep my mother motivated to keep her ageing with quality of life and not just getting older. Um... Any suggestions about the kinds of conversations I can be having with her beyond just buying your book and telling her to read it?
1: <laughs> well, you know, every case is different. There's there's no one recipe that works for everybody. Um, you know, having talked about the importance of associating with other people and being curious and trying new things, um, uh, you know, just to take one, associating with other people, that doesn't work for everybody. I describe in the book uh, an interview I had with a great saxophone player, Sonny Rollins, 89 years old, perhaps the greatest living jazz musician. And he and his girlfriend moved out of New York City a few years ago because people were always dropping by and wanting to visit. And they don't like people. <laughs> they, they moved out to the country, uh, to Woodstock, New York, where nobody, and nobody knows where they are. Well, I guess you do now. <laughs> But you know they thrive on just listening to music and reading. Sunny has become a scholar of Buddhism. So I mean I, I can't say what would be good for your mother, but um, you have to, you know I think you have to figure out what it is that she used to enjoy and take pleasure from. Figure out if she still can derive pleasure from those things, um, and if not, if it's not some limitation that you know, say for example she was in a wheelchair and she used to like running. I mean you know. Apart from physical limitations, maybe she needs to follow one of those various strategies, I said, to renew her enthusiasm and get her pleasure centers going again. And, and meeting new people is often, the, not for Sonny Rollins, but often the way to do that.
0: A question at the frontier the Lady in the Pink.
1: By the way, the, the Dalai Lama, who's doing great at 84, uh, is, um, is spending every day. He meets lots and lots of new people. He holds a kind of audience where he meets 100 people every day who he'd never met before. And um, Judy Collins, the American singer who's 80, just went out on a new tour, collaborating with Stephen Stills, a musician she had never played with before, um, and made it a point that at every engagement, she met with members of the audience and spoke with them. And so she was expanding her social and artistic parameters.
0: One last question at the front Hi, thank you. There's a question for both of you, actually. There's been a growing interest in um, the male and female split in terms of research subjects, um, because there tends to be a bias towards male subjects. Mm -hmm. What kind of split is there in terms of participants in the sort of studies that you're referencing, and is it an issue in neuroscience as it is in a lot of other sectors? From from my research point of view, um, we see both genders represented equally. What we are tending to do now is is analyze the results in gender-specific. We are noticing differences between males and females, but actually participating in research studies, both men and male and females are quite happy to participate in those studies. So I don't know whether.
1: Yeah, the, the, uh, I, I, I can c- concur that um, the, um, the field has uh, strived, striven. The, the, there's been a pattern. <laughs> I'm having past tense difficulties because I, I know they're different in the UK than they are in the US and I'm not navigating this well. But uh, for the last 20 or 30 years of brain imaging studies in general, we look at equal numbers of men and women, but it was, it was seen as not politically correct to start looking for differences between male and female brains. But of course there are differences And as you say, as Professor Lashley says, we're we're beginning to look at those and report on them. One interesting finding that comes from this um, is that it's not your biological sex that uh, is the big determinant. It really is gender, gender identification. So regardless of what uh, biological sex you are, if you identify as more male or more female, you're in that category. And it's also not dichotomous, which is another uh, understanding we're coming to. It's not that there are male brains and there are female brains. It's a continuum. And uh, along some parameters, a given individual could be more male on this attribute and more female on that attribute.
0: Well, I'm afraid we're gonna have to wrap up now. Um, So thank you all for coming and thank you all for your questions. If you'd like to know more about the RSA, then keep up to date with the efforts um, via the website and uh, project newsletters. Also, if you've not had lunch yet, there's a cafe downstairs, so please uh, visit the cafe. And there's some books out, Daniel's books out of out the front, and I'm sure you'll be happy to sign some of the uh, books if you'd like to purchase one of those. Um, so now please join me in thanking Daniel, um, the guest speaker today, and thank you for your time. Thank you. thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.